0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're diving into the extraordinary life of Antonio Vivaldi. There is a lot to get into, like his time and circumstances teaching at an orphanage in Venice, how he helped develop the concerto, and we discuss if illness was the true reason why he stopped being a priest after just one year. Plus, stay with us to the end as we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. I've always enjoyed Vivaldi's music, Evan, but I think I found a whole new appreciation and respect for him after reading out more on his life and finding some great documentaries because I knew, like I think many, that he was a part of and working with this orphanage in Venice, training these uh, young women in music, but I didn't realize just how big of an impact he had on that um, on that music program and the young women uh, going through that orphanage as well. I mean, it became the best conservatory in Europe for a while. And then I didn't realize how far into obscurity his music fell. There's like two centuries worth of audiences that I think really didn't even know his music at all.
1: Yeah, and that's so true of a lot of these uh, Baroque composers, these early uh, 18th century composers. Uh, You know, their music by the end of the 18th century, really largely forgotten through much of the 19th century. And it's only in the 20th century. People are discovering, wow, look at all this amazing music. And Vivaldi, too, as you were saying, John, he's uh, the more you learn about him as a person and the course of his career and the things he experienced, the more fascinating
0: he becomes. So let's jump right into his early life. As you said, we don't know too much about it, but we know Antonio Lucio Vivaldi was born in Venice on March 4th, 1678, and he was baptized rather quickly, maybe because he was already showing signs of some kind of sickness or ill health, a weakness or something. A rumor I think we can already dispel is that it was not because this baptism, uh, this quick baptism, it wasn't because there was a volcanic eruption nearby scaring nurses or some kind of premonition. I've read about that even in CD liner notes, but um, that volcanic eruption, that took place, I think, um, like months or even a year apart.
1: There's always these myths around these great composers and great geniuses of history and it's hard to sort through the truth in the fiction.
0: We do know though, uh, this time and place, Venice in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was a pretty exciting place. A lot of music, a lot of festivities happening in the city, on the water, music everywhere. And so it's kind of easy to see why he may have been drawn to music, especially because his father himself was a musician, right?
1: Yes, and as you were saying, John Venice was a really interesting place to be a musician and to be a music lover in the final decades of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century.
0: And Vivaldi's father was a musician. He was a barber and a very uh, well-respected violinist working a lot in Venice, and he presumably gave young Antonio Vivaldi his first lessons in music. But by age 15, he starts to train to become a priest alongside his work in music. He was ordained 10 years later in 1703 at the age of 25. But after a short period of that, not even a year, I think, he vowed to never say Mass again. And it seems like we have really little information to go on with this topic other than a letter he wrote like 25 years later, saying that he had to leave the podium or the lectern three times once during mass, complaining of tightness in the chest. Asthma is something that's been thrown around a lot as an illness Vivaldi may have had. And so he stopped, and he then basically, yeah, he never said Mass again. But that nickname stuck, didn't it? He was nicknamed um, Il Prete Rosso, if I can say that right, the Red Priest.
1: Prete Rosso. He was a redhead, and uh, he was known as the Red Priest through his whole life. He did give up saying Mass. It's not clear that he actually left the priesthood, and it seems to me that the way to interpret that is that he saw his ministry not as delivering the sacraments, but as a music minister.
0: Yes, I think that's accurate, because I've also wondered, well, how much of this is him not wanting to be a priest or, as you say, share the the music? Because I feel like we would have heard of more instances of him having to leave the stage or whatever as a musician. I mean, look at any violinist leaving the stage after playing a concerto, Um, they're sweaty, usually. There's a reason why there's, uh, in dressing rooms and green rooms, there's a reason why there's showers in there. But we never heard anything like that.
1: And lots of bottled water. But uh, Vivaldi, a performer his whole life, and there's no evidence, as you said, John, of him having to leave the stage during a performance. And, of course, he wrote very athletic violin parts for himself and for the other musicians. So clearly there's a lot of physical... Uh, effort involved in making this music. So I wonder, you know, he the, the story is that he had strecce di petto, this uh, tightness in the chest, and we're not really sure what that means. Asthma is a plausible explanation. I even wonder if he had some kind of anxiety while he was uh, saying mass or something, or he just felt like his calling in life was to do something different. And as you said, the duties of the priesthood maybe were less exciting to him than being a musician.
0: It's not really clear. No, but his calling came about the same time, 1703, right when he started working as the violin instructor at the Ospedale della Pietà. Tell us a little bit about uh, this.
1: The Ospedale della Pietà in Venice was part of a network of, uh, uh, really, the hospital system, ospedale, uh, hospital is one way to translate that word and their focus was on caring for the people in society that nobody else wanted to take care of or pay attention to for the most part so that includes uh, all these uh, thousands of orphaned and abandoned children in the city of venice uh it, the wider network of these institutions took care of the poor and uh people who had nowhere else to go and vivaldi through his whole professional life is a, is connected to these institutions
0: Yes, for decades he's working at Pietà, and I think this is, this is the kind of good and bad about Vivaldi's career because, as we'll see, Pietà was really the foundation of his musical life, but Pietà's existence itself was a symptom of something else in society. I mean, as you can imagine, it really wasn't a great situation for women in Venice in the 17th and 18th centuries. Many turning to sex work just to, as I saw in one uh, court case at the time, just to not starve, just to have any kind of housing or to even feed their children. It was a very um, kind of a grave situation. And that combined with the Tourism aspect of Venice. People from all over Europe, especially nobles, British nobles, they flocked to the city to, from what it sounds like, to just um, to party, take in the music, and with that um, sex work industry, it resulted in thousands of abandoned children, many with severe disabilities because of syphilis. Uh, the boys had to learn a trade and, and be out of the system by fifteen. The girls they got an education a bit more, and especially. In music, this music program, um, which Vivaldi was instrumental in making something huge, that also existed in part because they loved great music in churches on Sundays, these tourists who were there to begin with.
1: It's really fascinating to me to think about this creative genius, and we look at his music, it's amazing. But we're also, as we're talking about this, John, we're remembering that his entire professional life, he's creating this great art and challenging these girls, these, you know, they're really girls. they're, they're not adults, they're teenagers or they're, they're children. And these are people that the society in which Vivaldi lives, don't value. These are not people that are valued. They're ignored. They're invisible. And what Vivaldi does his entire life is elevate them to the status of these internationally renowned musicians. He trains them to be great players. He gives them magnificent and challenging music to play. He teaches them how to play it. And he's, in his whole life, in these relationships of caring and collegiality with these people who most other
0: people in his society would rather ignore. And all of this, for me, has really humanized Vivaldi because I think we all might have that person in our lives who was... um, that familiar face—someone who was at your school or institution or family or, or whatever for for decades—as Vivaldi was that familiar face that helped grow a program. I can imagine uh, maybe the daily interactions he would have with these girls and students um, passing through the the halls or whatever that kind of looked like at Pietas. So it really humanized him for me in thinking of Vivaldi more, uh, maybe through their eyes. Yeah. He's,
1: uh, you wonder if he's a kind of a father figure to a lot of these girls and the way in which he's creating this great art for them and challenging them to create something that's so special and liberating. And he does it for his
0: whole life, for, for decades Maybe people caught a little bit ago where we said he was hired as a violin teacher at Pietà. Today, we know him, of course, as one of the great composers of this century, but he was known as one of the great violinists, oh, and a great composer, too. Um, he was well sought after. He His uh, playing was described as astounding. He was a great teacher. He, he helped develop technique for the instrument. Um, he really pushed that forward in addition to, as we'll find out, him pushing forward the concerto form within the, the school. So I guess, what was his first composition then, if he was busy with the violin, the first part of his life? Of course, we don't know his first composition, but we have his first publication, his Opus 1 from 1705, two years after he started working at Pietà. It's a set of trio sonatas for violins and accompaniment. (laughs) So that was an example from one of those trios, Evan. Already for me, I don't know, maybe I'm biased or whatever. It's so fantastical. It's so simple. It's two violins and some accompaniment or basso continuo. But even there in his opus one, you hear a kind of fantastical, bright, effervescent nature in the sound.
1: He's able to compose works that are technically very intricate, and yet they have this wonderfully appealing style to them, that even if you don't know anything about music, it's just so delightful and charming to listen to. But, you know, Vivaldi is not just a scribbler of pretty tunes. He's really writing intricate and wonderful and marvelous music from the very beginning.
0: And years later, he had a a pretty big breakthrough, I think, right in uh, 1711. He had a, it was his Opus 3 that was published, uh, I think, in Amsterdam. What was his Lestro Armonico? Let's draw a monico, Op. 3. The first two publications he had were for a couple of instruments, these uh, trio sonatas, but Vivaldi starts branching out more, right? We have more instruments, it's more involved, there's um, presumably more going on in the music.
1: And this is really, you know, the second decade of the 18th century, the form that we think of as the concerto, which is we generally think of as a piece that's written for a large ensemble with one or maybe two or three solo instruments that are featured prominently. This is still a pretty new genre of music in the year 1711, and Vivaldi is among those who are actually developing this form through their compositions and through their playing.
0: And by the time he's in his 30s, his publications, his music, it was found all over Europe. I mean, if you can get Johann Sebastian Bach interested in arranging your own music for whatever he was doing, that's that's uh, that's quite an endorsement, I think.
1: Yes, and Bach actually arranged a number of Vivaldi pieces, which gives us an indication that Bach held Vivaldi's music in high regard.
0: I also wonder how much of his writing here reflects also the space that he's in because there's this um, big church or cathedral where they are playing these um, services or whatever from Pietà on, on these Sundays. And some of the music, it just it sounds like you want to hear this in a place with very, very high ceilings where you, you hear the music directly, but then kind of in the background above you and around you, it's kind of sparkling.
1: And as you said, people came from all over Europe to hear this music that Vivaldi and his students at the Pietà were creating.
0: He really built up that program, didn't he? It gained more and more recognition and became, from what I understand, one of the greatest conservatories in Europe. Some of the best um, orchestras or ensembles, people, as you said, were flocking there to to hear these um, girls play. And he wasn't writing easy music, was he? These weren't student concerts or music that was written at a more amateur level because, for myself even, I thought for a long time this Pieta program that Vivaldi was with. It's yeah, it's a great, really, really advanced kind of high school program that we know today. But no, it was a full fledged like conservatory, and he was writing very difficult music and there were players there that could do it.
1: Yes, and vocalists as well. And he challenged all of them to be their best.
0: Hundreds of concertos, right? I think
1: around five hundred in total. Four hundred or yeah some some stupendous number we're even possibly discovering new ones as the years unfold but it was a it's a vast output of music
0: that's something we should mention real quick is we're still finding music I didn't realize this. in the 2000s we're finding compositions of Vivaldi either because they were written later in life when he was writing for private um, donors or patrons or just discovered in um, some other way and so we have hundreds of concertos for various instruments. Most are for the violin, kind of understandable. That's really the big solo instrument of the time. But he wrote many others as well. The oboe concertos, Evan, I, I love these. They are so difficult, aren't they?
1: Yeah, he really wrote uh, virtuosic music for pretty much any instrument you can name. And yet, as, I, as we were saying, you know, it's it's technically very complex, and yet as you listen to it, it's just so charming and sparkling and wonderful to listen to.
0: We did an episode on the oboe. It's number 65, and it's with Principal Oboe of the NSO, Nicholas Stovall. And in that episode, he's telling us a how, about how kind of primitive the oboe is at this time in the 1700s. And these oboe concertos that Vivaldi was writing were so difficult. I mean, it was a couple of decades before other composers were writing at a similar level of difficulty. Players today will acknowledge that these are um, they are quite difficult. So it was always kind of an enigma or or wonder who was playing these concertos, but there certainly was a few um, girls and young women at Pietà who could pull it off.
1: Surely there were uh, some really, really gifted players under his tutelage at the Pietà, and the oboe is certainly one we've been talking about, but also the bassoon. He wrote a number of concertos with a solo bassoon, which was a pretty unusual thing even then.
0: (laughs) ¶¶
1: so you have these very, very demanding uh, parts for double reed instruments, which are hard enough to play. And as you mentioned, John, in the early 18th century, they're uh, they're not as complex as they've become in modern times. So even harder to play probably back then than they are now. But clearly the uh, girls and young women at the Pietà
0: were able to do it. And speaking of kind of sparkly, effervescent sounds. I love his writing for the recorder or the sopranino recorder. Very, very high instrument. Takes a lot of control to um, play this instrument. Very unwieldy. It's almost like you're just playing a straw. For me, this is some of his most sparkly effervescent. And of course, he wrote hundreds for the violin. And this is another one of those moments, I think, with a student that uh, that humanizes Vivaldi. Anna Maria della Pietà was a, a student. And you can imagine, della Pietà was a name shared by many of these orphans. Vivaldi was her violin teacher, mentored her. He even spent several months' salary just getting her a suitable violin. Today, that's kind of a bargain, just three months of your salary for an amazing instrument. But... Clearly, he believed in her, and she was fantastic. Eventually, she took over the roles that he was uh, doing in charge of um, uh, teaching violin as well, and he wrote several concertos for her, like one we're hearing now. That's just... um, I mean, it shows, really, I think, for the violin especially, he was not... He was okay with just writing very, very difficult music because the the students could do it. This one's the RV363 that we're listening to, and we're you might hear us say RV and then a number quite a lot. And that's because we're referring to a catalog of Ivaldi's music, right, Evan? Because I think there's got to be at least 50 concertos that are just concerto and C.
1: Right. So how do you keep track of all these things, especially if Ivaldi didn't publish so much of his music? Danish uh, musicologist Peter Riom who was born in 1937, did an enormous, uh, made an enormous contribution to the understanding of Vivaldi by cataloging huge numbers of his works. So when we say RV, we're referring to the Riom Catalog or Riom Verzeichnis in, uh, in the German language. Another thing to bear in mind with these uh, Riom Catalog numbers is that they're not chronological. So unlike, say, the Kirschel numbers that we associate with the music of Mozart, Uh, If it has like a 600 number, that's probably a piece Mozart wrote late in life. With Vivaldi's, uh, with the Riome catalog, we don't see that. It's just uh, as they discover and catalog works, they'll just add another number. So it can be a little confusing when you hear the numbers trying to sort out where they fit in Vivaldi's lifespan. uh, And then we have to find out uh, through further research and exploration where that might actually be.
0: Yeah, because if you discover a new work and it's in the middle... But now we reorder half the catalog, you yeah. can't do that. But it's really handy in that a lot of uh, the works that I think of Vivaldi, I just remember them by the number. And it's great because when you're listening to the radio or, or whatever, and you hear someone say, uh, blah, 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 concerto, a bunch of different words, and then RV and a number, that's all you need. When I look up Vivaldi's music, and I know the number, I just type in RV589, um, for example, for a work we'll talk about in just a moment. It makes it, makes it very handy.
1: Right. And you mentioned 589, a famous gloria, which we'll talk about momentarily, but there's also RV 588, which is a less famous setting of the same liturgical text. And when we play that on, for example, our vocal music station, Viva la Voce, I will often say this is the less famous gloria of Vivaldi Riom 588, not to be confused with 589. And as you get to know Vivaldi's music, some of these numbers, as you mentioned, John, actually stay in your mind.
0: And speaking of that Gloria RV589, this has become one of the most popular choral works of Vivaldi, and it kind of asks a question, well, wait a second, we have a chorus here. There are soprano parts, alto parts, um, tenor parts, and bass parts in the music. This was written for the, 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 the girls at Pietà, so who's singing these um, lower parts? Well, it was thought for a long time, kind of naturally, that they were sung by male faculty members. They would just come in, sing the parts for whatever um, on a Sunday, and that was kind of it. But through research and everything we found out, no, they were all sung by women. There were women bass and baritone singers. They're not as common, but of course they do exist, just as there are male sopranos, not as common, but they do exist. So I thought that was also fascinating, and I'll put a link to that documentary on the show notes page of um performance at, at the school, actually, I think, of all women singing these parts.
1: Yeah, that documentary is really fascinating. This is one of the more intriguing puzzles in musicology with regard to the music of Vivaldi, and for years I was skeptical. How could women sing those low parts? But, you know, I'm I'm convinced. I mean, it's the most, it's a difficult thing to understand, but it's the most plausible explanation. There's no evidence that men were involved in these performances. There are paintings. People would, like you said, John, people would visit from all over Europe. Some people drew pictures or made paintings. And you see in these images, nothing but girls and women performing this music. So clearly this is yet another example of Antonio Vivaldi challenging these girls and women to to stretch the boundaries of their creativity and their capability as musicians. And, you know, if you think about uh, these scores and the bass parts, which are, by the way, always doubled by the instruments anyway, they are, in fact, by some very extraordinary women,
0: possible for for them to sing those pitches. And they did. And we'll get into the next chapter of Vivaldi's Life right after this.
1: (laughs) ¶¶
0: classical breakdown your guide to classical music is made possible by weta classical join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime day or night you can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or in the weta classical app it's free in the app store There's another side of Vivaldi's life that kind of takes place while he's at Pietà, and that is he gets involved in opera. This was the most lucrative, most popular form of entertainment in early 18th century Venice. It was, it was opera. It was also considered a bit indecent, I think, or maybe risque, something that a priest, former or not or whatever, it's something that they probably wouldn't, shouldn't be associated with, right? But he became involved and extremely successful. Sure. Well, that's true
1: today too. If you're a composer and you really want to make a lot of money and be really famous, you want to have a big hit on Broadway or you want to write the score for a hit movie. And that's uh, analogous to what opera was in the early 18th century, really throughout Europe, certainly in a city like Venice, where opera is a burgeoning industry. And at the age of 35, Vivaldi tries to get in on the game, not without some success.
0: (laughs) <laughs> the first one, I think, Otone in Vila, um, that was a rounding success, I think, for his first opera. And he's 35 years old, too. That's not, that's not a, a young age to be, um, to be writing opera compared to everyone else like Mozart and Rossini.
1: He's not a novice. He's got many years' uh, experience as a performer, as a as a musician. He's well known. He's publishing music. He he's a, he's a known quantity throughout Europe, as we were saying. So yeah, this is a new venture for him, and if it's very competitive. Uh, Lots of other composers are writing opera. In many cases, Vivaldi through his career is actually collaborating with these other composers. There's the tradition of the pasticcio where multiple composers would write pieces for one operatic performance.
0: But Vivaldi uh, wrote quite a lot of operas through the course of his career. I think this is also another place where we can kind of humanize him a bit. Just thinking about um, being at age 35 He's already very successful, wildly successful, you could say, as a violinist, as a composer, and all these other forms. Now, there was probably a lot of expectations, I don't know, maybe pressure or something. I'm sure he had some nights where he was kind of pacing around, oh my gosh, what if this opera fails? Uh, Will they kick me out of the school? Will they um, do this or that? I don't know. But I think that still took a bit of bravery for him to, uh, to take that on. Of course, while he's writing for opera, and he actually became an impresario, like a director at a at a Teatro San Angelo, an opera house, he continues to do that. But of course, he's also working with Pietà. He's still writing them music all the time, and it seems like maybe some of the opera characteristics bled over into his sacred music, Juditha uh, Triumphans. This um, oratorio he wrote in 1716 after he you know shortly got into opera has some very opera-like qualities to me. The way the singer and the orchestra are, are working together, the sudden, really short um, jumping-out notes from the orchestra and the, the intensity of the voice seems a little operatic. Yes, oratorio,
1: of course, a dramatic form, not usually staged. And it's yet another indication to me of the peculiar and fascinating ambivalence that you find in European culture in the early 18th century about opera, which as you were saying earlier, John, some people viewed it as kind of indecent or risque. You have a lot of these passionate love stories in opera, for example, and Vivaldi being a priest. Well, maybe this isn't appropriate, some people might've felt. And yet you have these operatic forms coming into liturgical music or in the music that you would hear in a, in a religious setting like the Pietà, because people loved it. Everybody loves drama. Everybody loves excitement, uh, whether or not they want to admit it. And, of course, in 1716, uh, know, he's writing this oratorio. This is a few decades before Handel makes the English oratorio into this, uh, you know, this huge form. Uh, But in both cases, and in the cases of many of these composers of this era, you have these very operatic qualities informing the style of oratorio writing. Vivaldi was one of the first, I think, to really explore those possibilities.
0: In a letter he claimed to write, to have written over 90 operas, only about 50 um, have survived. And then there's also fragments of others and stuff like that. A lot was either, um, lost or maybe he was embellishing a little bit. I think he probably reused some stuff, but, um, at least 50.
1: Yes. And when he says, like you said, when he says 90 operas, does that mean, Does that include multiple revisions of one opera? Does it include a pasticcio with other composers? I don't know. But he did obviously compose a huge number of operas. Exactly what that number is, who knows? But you discover these works, a lot of them have never been heard. Uh, We're still discovering and exploring these scores. Many of them performed in the late 20th century for the first time in more than 200 years. And so many of them are so
0: amazing. I love that we, we're still discovering. I can only imagine being you know, in the orchestra, playing it for the first time, reading through it for the first time, um, knowing that these musicians or these instruments together have not created this piece or this music in, in centuries. That must be quite an experience.
1: And as with his instrumental writing, Vivaldi is able to compose music for the voice that's virtuosic without sounding technical or just like empty pyrotechnics. He's able to create things that are very difficult to perform, but they're incredibly exciting to listen to. Around
0: 1718, Vivaldi takes what is uh, apparently a prestigious position at the court of governor of Mantua. This is Maestro Di Capella. And he's now, as we can see, he's he's spending more time outside of Venice. He's traveling, but he still maintains that relationship with them. He was paid, I couldn't find out what it was in today's dollars, but he was paid like two gold coins a month to continue writing larger works, and concertos um, for the school as well. He did this, I guess, for, for many years before returning full-time, and he was visiting at times, right? He would come in and he would have to play and rehearse with the, um, with the school, but um, it was 1725 before he came back full-time.
1: And he's really maintaining his relationship with other European musical centers and continuing to bolster his reputation throughout Europe as a composer to be reckoned with it's possible that when he was in mantua during that time he first became acquainted with anna tessiere giro a woman with whom he would collaborate for the remainder of his life and she was from what we know about her a very capable singer maybe not the most virtuosic most technically skilled singer And he wrote a lot of music for her to perform in his operas. Apparently, she was a very gifted actor. Audiences loved her. She had a marvelous dramatic flair, uh, many opera roles written for her. She and her sister lived with Vivaldi for many years. She traveled with him a great deal. And it's apparent that she was enormously supportive of him as a composer and as a performer. Now, you can imagine, here's this priest living with these two women And some people (laughs) maybe uh, had some doubts about whether or not this was appropriate. Uh, However, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, John, we have to be honest that us menfolk don't always deserve the benefit of the doubt. But that being said, uh, there's no evidence that this, uh, this priest, Antonio Vivaldi, had any kind of relationship with this woman other than one of collaboration and professional mutual respect and friendship.
0: I think all of your points there are are absolutely right. And I think maybe to also bring Ana Teresa Giro into um, a a familiar frame today, I think it's like she was probably like maybe a Broadway star. She had some kind of it factor where, you know, she grabbed you and she had your attention the entire time she was on stage. Maybe not the, like you said, not the technically most proficient, but she had something else.
1: And clearly, a very shrewd businesswoman, and uh, a very dedicated musician, and who really understood the industry. I think in a very sophisticated way.
0: I think some people might be listening and wondering. Well, wait a second. Um, what about the Four Seasons? What about that? Well, how does that fit into all this? Wasn't that his most famous piece? And actually, it was a collect. It was part of a collection of other concertos, wasn't it?
1: 1725 was the year they were published. They were published as part of his Opus Eight. Which is a collection of twelve concertos. Uh, the title of that whole collection is Il Cimento dell'Armonia e dell'Invenzione, the, the contest of harmony and invention. So, this rather sort of poetic title for this collection of concertos. They were published in Amsterdam, and the first four of those twelve concertos are Le Quattro Stagioni, the the four seasons. I think it was the first season of Classical Breakdown, uh, episode three, you and James Jacobs had a wonderful conversation about the four seasons. And uh, one of the things you guys point out in that episode is that there are these sonnets that are meant to accompany the music. It's possible Vivaldi is the author of these poems, one about each season. And it's a wonderful way of exploring this incredibly descriptive music. That he composes, and it's not surprising to me. These works are so famous because the more you listen to them and think about them, they're they're so imaginative and thrilling and wonderful and beautiful.
0: They're really quite astounding, aren't they? I mean, when you really get into it, there's nothing like this. It's almost maybe like um, if if, I, if maybe it's too bold to say. It's almost like a Berlioz Symphony Fantastique moment. It's like, what is this? Where did this come from? And then there's nothing quite like it for a while. So much detail in the music, a lot of detail that's lost on listeners because it's stuff that's just written in the score or or clever things. And the sonnets that he wrote, it probably is played too much in all forms everywhere. But I think people often hear just the kind of romanticized version, the kind of maybe slower, sappier, If that's maybe a little harsh, but sometimes a little too sappy. When you listen to the how it was performed originally in, that, um, in this Baroque practice, in this early 18th century um, style of music. When you hear it that way, it's extraordinary. It blows me away every single time.
1: And I really appreciated your comparison to Berlioz. I think that's an apt analogy to draw. In both cases, Berlioz and Vivaldi are telling a story with music and doing it in a way that nobody before them had thought to do. And uh, just, you know, shocking some audiences and thrilling many others. Uh, you know, Vivaldi, the, he's, he's painting these pictures in these concertos, and you hear dogs barking and bugs buzzing and lightning flashing. And, you know, who, who was doing this before Vivaldi? Not, not a lot of composers. He really had a way of conceiving of music in ways that were fresh and new, and they continue to be exciting to us today.
0: So Vivaldi's lived this life of just great music, composing hundreds of concertos, all kinds of choral and sacred works for uh, Pietà in that institution. Opera, great success there in the later part of his life, the Four Seasons. I mean, he's just a force to be reckoned with, but like all things, there has to be an end. And this started for Vivaldi in the later part of the 1730s, now in his late 50s. His music is no longer that fresh, that exciting. He's been there for decades. He's starting to fall off in popularity instead of writing um, concertos for these performances. He's writing them for private donors, selling off other or older manuscripts for um, some money. And in 1740, he leaves Pietà, he leaves Venice for Vienna for reasons we're not 100% sure about. May have been to stage opera, probably likely because of that. I think he went to stage opera in Vienna after meeting um, Charles or Charles the Sixth, the Emperor at the time. I guess unfortunately they died shortly after Vivaldi's arrival in October of 1740, and then less than a year later, that next July in 1741, Vivaldi himself would die in Vienna in poverty, and allegedly Evan, this is hard to believe, no music played at his burial.
1: Yeah, it's a sad end to an otherwise stellar career in many ways. Vienna, you know, was just really becoming beginning to be a great musical center of Europe in the 1740s and the years prior to that. You mentioned uh, the Emperor Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor, was very enthusiastic about music. Apparently, he had met Vivaldi sometime before that, and it hinted that he would be welcome in Vienna. So maybe Vivaldi went to Vienna for that reason. We're not really sure. But as you said, the emperor died shortly after Vivaldi got there and the hopes that he had brought to his migration to Vienna never materialized and he died in poverty and obscurity.
0: One more way I think we can kind of humanize him, I think in a kind of a more humor way here is that when he left in 1740, it sounds like he left rather quickly. I mean, he didn't run out of the city at night with his pajamas on or something, but he left pretty quickly. And it seems to be not because there was some bad situation with Pieta. It's, I've, I've read pushback against that. But what's funny to me is that apparently he just left town and didn't even take care of the lease on the home or, or, or place that he was staying. He just got got up and left. And I think we've all been there in some way where it's just like, I just got to get out of here. I, I don't want to be here anymore. And he, But he just got up and left. Uh, and didn't take care of the lease on his uh, on his house.
1: Yeah, clearly uh, his affairs were not in order in the final years of his life for reasons that are not entirely clear to us today.
0: And unfortunately from there with his death his music quickly fell into obscurity after 1741. A lot of his music has survived. It was preserved in some way, but many compositions, uh, many concertos, many other things, they're lost, of course, after um, 200 years. Serious research wouldn't begin on Vivaldi and his music until um, around World War I and then getting popular in the 1940s. It makes you wonder, Evan, what composer right now is in the middle of their 200-year obscurity?
1: Right We're still discovering music all the time, maybe in an archive somewhere or uh, you know there's that uh, Florence Prices music was discovered in an abandoned house uh, maybe 15 or so years ago. Uh, you know there's there's manuscripts floating around somewhere and certainly if they go back to say the 18th century, there's still more for us to explore. But even in the music that we have, somebody has to perform it. We want to hear it, and there's so much music by Vivaldi and other composers of this era that we're still just really beginning to rediscover. And I think the more that we can do that, the more we can look into the past as well as encourage living composers and and hear their music as well. They're not mutually exclusive, and we'll be thrilled by what we can find out.
0: Beautiful. Well, with that comes the end of our story on Vivaldi, and it's time now to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Dbev79 left a review, gave us five stars, and said, love it. This is a fun version of classical light, unpretentious and informative, and a nice way to get access to music, composers, and musicians, of which I would have never otherwise been aware. Well, thank you so much, Dbev79. We all appreciate it. And Evan, do you have anything else for Vivaldi? Antonio Vivaldi, uh, you can't
1: turn on the radio on a classical station like WETA Classical and listen for several hours without hearing at least one piece by Vivaldi. He's enormously popular. His music is played all over the world. And some people maybe turn their noses up at Vivaldi and think of him as just writing sort of light, frivolous music. And I think we need to challenge that view and to recognize this was a really creative and ingenious composer and a really marvelous and complex human being who left an extraordinary legacy of creativity to the world that we should continue to explore and rediscover.
0: Well said, Evan. I know when I hear Vivaldi next on the radio, I'll definitely take a second, listen and absorb and just remember and think about those times, him walking through Pieta, all those performances and all everything he did there, and maybe listen to it from that aspect. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical.